The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, I'm excited. We are starting a new series this morning. We are doing a three-week series on the vision of our church. The vision of our church, hopefully it's, it's been ingrained in you at this point that uh, this is nothing new because we've put it on uh, the bulletin, our e-news, our website, everything that we, uh, that we put out. We talk about we want to be a church that sees lives transformed by the power of the gospel, transforming lives by the power of the gospel. And as you can see in the slide behind me, this is something that we kind of first launched, I think, about a year ago. And kind of around that vision statement, we've said, these are the things that we want to be about. We want to be about celebration, that that we're a church that knows how to celebrate, that we know how to throw a party, because we have a reason to, the hope that is in us through Christ, that we celebrate well, that that we're a church that wants to uh, renew our minds by the power of the gospel, uh, that we recognize there's there's a process that we're going towards, and so uh, we want uh, our minds to be renewed, also that we would uh, uh, experience service together. That, that we would be a church, we've often said that we'd be a church that was missed if it closed its doors. And, and part of that, um, both uh, opportunity, but also call to further in this, is that uh, we have had opportunities to, to really serve our community, and we want to continue to do that through service. And then lastly, that we would be a church that experiences deep community. That we would go beyond these surface-level conversations, and when you come to church and someone says, how you doing? It's good. Like, are you Really? That we would be a church that goes deeper than that, that says, I want to know who you are. I want to experience life together with you. And so this is the beginning of, again, a three-week series I'm preaching, obviously, this morning. And then Bill is back uh, the next two weeks preaching on kind of the other four pillars uh, of our vision statement. So uh, new series this morning, and then we are in 2 Corinthians 5. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. It'll also be on the screen in front of you. Our text is 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, starting with verse 11, and then we're going to go through chapter 6, verse 13. This is the word of the Lord to you this morning. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for those who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once Regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. 
and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are dependent on your word, dependent on you, to come now and, and give an alternative voice to what the culture says we're supposed to do. To come in and, and show us where the gospel needs to hit, to show us who we are, to show us where our hope is, and ultimately to bring us to the one where our true defense lies. God, this is our prayer to you this morning. Do all that we ask, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, well, a couple weeks ago, I got the opportunity to go to Texas. As uh, many of you heard, we went with the high schoolers, went with about 25, 26 high school students and leaders. It was a wonderful trip. A lot of the work we did was uh, we did roofing. We went into people's homes, did painting, drywall. A lot of students uh, laid new flooring for people. So this was uh, after Hurricane Harvey kind of devastated this area. And something dawned on me uh, this, uh, a couple weeks ago when we were in the middle of it. It's that everyone in this area had something in common. Literally everyone who lived there. On August 25th, 2017, 130 to 135 mile an hour winds came and devastated that area in Texas. And there wasn't a life that was left untouched that at least had some way was affected by it. Most people lost some portion, if not all of their homes in that area. Many people lost jobs, their income. Everyone was affected by this. And you know what I thought about? When we think about sin, we all have that in common. All of us have to now, after sin comes and wipes its devastating effects on our lives and presents itself in, in sickness and, and, uh, and death and, and unmet expectations and failure and pride and messiness in relationships, we all have faced the same thing. And now what we have to do is look around and we say, so now what? How do we rebuild? How do we actually see a life transformed by the power of the gospel. If you're like me, this topic is scary. Okay, we're not good at transforming. I've been trying to get abs for about 13 years, and something tells me it's not going to come. We are terrible at transforming, like even the simplest things. And now we come as a church to you and say, hey guys, one simple vision, transforming your life by the power of the gospel. Easy enough, right? Not at all. So it's an intimidating topic, and one that I hope as you see as we look at the gospel you actually can do it. So what we're going to look at, this process 
Uh, and I'm going to warn you, a lot of times I, I like making things really simple, like verses 1 through 5.1, verses 6 through 10. That's not the case here. I'm jumping around. Um, uh, I'm going kind of from the beginning to the end. So I will always read to you the text that I'm going to read. We're going to stay in this, but uh, we're going to kind of do some jumping around. So the first thing we're going to see is the completed transforming work of the gospel. The completed transforming work of the gospel. The second is the ongoing transforming work of the gospel. And then thirdly, the ex- extending the transforming work of the gospel. So hopefully you caught on almost the same point, but one word difference in each one. So we've got the completed, the ongoing, and then extending the transforming work of the gospel. So first, first point, we're just reading one verse. Told you it's going to get weird. So verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the first question for us this morning that I have for you is, do you see your need to be reconciled to God? This is, if you've ever had this happen to you, this has happened to me before, where like someone comes up to you and says, hey, I just want you to know that I've forgiven you. You ever had that? I, I know you have, because this happens like all the time. They come up and they say, I just want you to know like I've forgiven you. And then they bring up something that happened like six months ago that you did. And, and they say, I just, I, I've forgiven you for that. And it, it kind of sounds kind of crazy because you're like, I never agreed that we had any kind of tension between us for that. And that same feeling is what you're going to experience if when you read in verse 20 where it says, be reconciled to God, the temptation is to look and say, I didn't realize we needed to be reconciled. So Paul is coming. And look, a lot of times when we read scripture, you have to kind of look at the original audience and there's always something for us to take away, but it's sometimes not like direct application. You kind of have to learn more about the culture. I'm going to just tell you this morning directly of what Paul is saying. We need to hear this direct language. When he says, Corinthians, be reconciled to God, my, my plea with you is, Hilton and Presbyterian Church, be reconciled to God. We have a need to be reconciled to God. But how does this look like? You see, I think something in our culture that's not hard to do, is to show people that there is a tension there between us and God, that there is a need for reconciliation. Look, when there's a hurricane that comes through a community, you don't have to convince people that a hurricane went through the community. In the same way, when you talk about this life with people, I really don't think you have to do much convincing of saying there's a hurricane of sin and unmet expectations and fallenness of man that has come through this, and so now what? Now what? How do we deal with this this destruction of reconciliation needed between us and God? And Paul lays this out by uh, saying in verses 18 and 19, look at what he says. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul now comes and says, good news. So, uh, I don't know if you realize this, like, if you really want to get someone's attention, you go to them and you say, hey, I've got good news, right? That also draws us in. One of the ways I like to mess with my wife is if I have good news and I want to call her, I call her and just say, hey, you want to hear some good news? And they just kind of do that awkward, long pause where she's waiting for it. Because it brings people in. What we're saying a lot of times in the midst of a hard day is, hey, do you need some good news? Are you worn out? Do you need some good news? So Paul comes and says, hey, are you worn out? Do you need some good news? And here it is, ready? Here's the good news. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
He made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that only lands for us if we understand the first point of our need for reconciliation. If we understand that we sinned and that we have a need for reconciliation. Here's why I think we often skip over this. We forget that this isn't our default option. Like we come into church, we hear about grace and mercy and about, about Christ forgiving us. We forget, I think, that, that there was a time where that wasn't the plan, right? That we actually did this, that we needed Christ to come in. We weren't uh, obligated. God wasn't obligated to say, okay, I'm going to give my son for a rebellious people, that we deserve sin. Think about who Paul is talking to. He's talking to people who still have the memories of the Old Testament, who still have their grandparents and their great-grandparents talk about Israel and the many ways we messed up and the covenant and all that, and, and things aren't as clear. It's the same way that people were saved, the old versus the new, but the plan of redemption is not clear. And Paul comes in and says, let me clarify some things. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that phrase, the righteousness of God, is fascinating. Because I think a lot of times when we think about the fact that we are seen perfectly in God's eyes by salvation, it's kind of like almost a backup. Or surely we're not seen the same way. But here's what this is actually saying. The same way that God looks on Christ for, for living for that 30, 33 years, fulfilling the law, sacrificing himself, and then being raised to life, the same way that God sees him, God sees the exact same thing when he looks at you because of the sacrifice of him who knew no sin that became sin on your behalf so that you will become the righteousness of God. That is the completed, transforming work of the gospel that I'm just going to kind of give you a little, uh, a little taste of later on. This, we're not going to move on from this. Like It's not like we say, okay, point one, point one's done. You got that, move on. We're going to go on and going. No, you always go back to point one. You always go back to the fact that this is a complete, a one and done, a transforming work of the gospel and that you are new because of it. Here's what this looks like. I give this illustration to my students all the time, so they're going to like say not again, but sorry. Um, I was a terrible student in like middle school and high school. College, I kind of smartened up, um, but middle school and high school, terrible students. So my worst time of year was report card time when they would issue out and they started smartening up and like having you have to sign your report cards, you know, to make sure the parents saw it. Um, even worse, I don't know if they still do this, but like in my, when I was in school, they, they did like deficiencies where like halfway through the year, halfway through the semester, they also told you that you were failing. And so for those of us who were terrible in school, it was just like an opportunity to get in trouble eight times throughout the year, not just four, but I was a terrible student. I can't imagine one day if I got my report card and it said, Tim Pitzer on it, and I opened it up, and instead of seeing the failing grades that I knew I always deserved, it just had straight A's. I always dreamed of that. Now, think of what I naturally would conclude if that happened. I would not be thinking, wow, my teachers had grace. They just, you know, they really recognized that I just tried, and, and they just kind of wanted to make me have a good day. No, I probably would have been thinking, I got someone else's grades. <laughs> like, my name's on this report card, but they messed up. And then think about what that also means is that some poor sap out there that was deserving of these grades got my grades. I'd be tempted to think, this is awesome. And does that sound familiar? He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we become the righteousness of God. Your record got switched. 
It still has your name on it. But when God opens up your plan, he opens up your life, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And this should cause us to say, this doesn't sound like justice, because if justice were really served, I deserve these failing grades. And if justice were really served, Christ, who lived the perfect life on my behalf, does not deserve the record, the punishment that I was full deserving. And in Christ, God says, this is my plan of redemption. And we look at it. We say it is completed and done. And so when we talk about the transforming work, the power of the gospel, the part we cannot move on is that this process begins and never ends with not you, with not doing your work, with Christ doing it all on your behalf. We're not good at getting gifts, right? I had thought of this recently. We're out to dinner, and, you know, when the bill came, like we both did the... uh, you know, that, that kind of thing, and the person beat me to it and did the, I feel like I don't argue long enough than, like, is culturally supposed to, I probably should try harder, but, like, I said, okay, fine, but you know what I said after, which is so, so dumb, and I'm sorry, if, like, you guys had this happen last night, I'm not calling you dumb, but I'm done, um, what we always say after someone does that is, ready, okay, next time I'll get it. Think about what you're saying, like, someone says, I want to give you a gift, like, with no strings attached, and inevitably what you're saying is, okay, but I'm going to give this back to you so that you don't have something on me. We're terrible at receiving things freely. And if we can't receive a free dinner, are you surprised that it's hard that we receive a man that comes and says, I'm going to live perfectly on your behalf. I'm going to die for you. And then shows he's God by the resurrection. Is it any surprise that that's actually hard for us to swallow? Because when we truly understand how deep our sin goes, and we finally accept and say, okay, yes, I need reconciling to you, God. This one actually hurts because someone went to a cross on my behalf. That was supposed to be me up there. Be like if someone goes to, to jail for a crime that you know you committed. And what do you choose to do? Hopefully, most of us, I got to think, would go back to the court and say, you got it wrong. This was me. And Christ comes and says, it doesn't matter. This is the great exchange. My record for yours. It is complete. It is done. I had a seminary professor in college, uh, in seminary, that uh, was like the top five leading scholars on the Trinity. The guy was brilliant. He spoke like eight languages. Um, I'm not exaggerating. Knew like half the Bible in the Greek and Hebrew um, and could quote any passage, you know, just, he'd be like reading a text and we would notice like he's not even reading from his Bible, he just kind of knows it. And it always kind of struck me, he always quoted one such simple line of scripture, ready? He always said this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Over and over again, the man could have quoted whole sections of scripture and he chose such a simple phrase and a lot of times after, you know, he'd be teaching and, and giving us some kind of a great biblical wisdom, he would always end with Christ in you, the hope of glory. Folks, we can't move on from this, and we never will, that our only hope in this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's hope because it is complete. It is the one thing in your life, the one relationship where, where there's not a cause and effect relationship that has something to do with you. He caused it, and we get the effect. And that is so contrary to everything we experience in relationships, in work, in our day-to-day, where you just receive something. You reap the benefits of someone else that lived a perfect life and went to a cross and took the punishment on your behalf. And so once we get that, now we can move on to point two. That says there's 
ongoing work to be done, the ongoing transformation by the power of the gospel. We're going to look at, this is probably the most famous, a lot of you probably have this memorized, this, uh, this verse in this passage is 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is our, our point for point two. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. The difference in here is ongoing, and that is a huge distinction that I have to make sure you recognize the difference. Complete means complete, means done. Ongoing means that there's ongoing work to do in this transformation. Here's what we're saying as a leadership of the church. We want to see your life changed by the power of the gospel. That's, that's a hard thing to say, I recognize, because I know how hard it is for my life to see change, but we're saying that wherever you find us in in this church, at whatever point you walk in those doors, in season of abundance, of praise, of mourning, if you were born yesterday, if you're a teenager, if you're a college student, or you're 103 and you're finishing this earthly journey, wherever you are, we want to look and say, let's see your life transformed by the power of the gospel. Let's see something different happen. We want to know that you are different because you walked in these doors simply because you heard the gospel. It's something that's humbling because we know that as a leadership, we, we can't do it for you. I know that I can't do it for myself. We can't say, we don't have, there's a reason why the vision doesn't say, transforming lives by hearing the preaching. Transforming lives by getting involved in the youth ministry. Transforming lives by receiving counseling from the pastors. There's a reason that we end this with by the power of the gospel. Because we know that that is the only thing that is able to truly transform a life. Now what does this look like? We're going to kind of walk through this a little bit. Look at verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. If you're like me, when you read that you're controlled by something, that's not really a good thing, right? We don't like the idea of something else controlling us other than ourselves. There's a kind of like a youth game that a lot of youth pastors play with their kids. I stopped doing it because of what I'm about to tell you it usually ends up being. It's where you break up into groups and you blindfold one person. And you kind of say, okay, you got to get from here to that destination um, with, with you know, your buddies only just telling you, turn left, turn right, go straight. Inevitably, there's always like one group, usually it's like, it's guys, to be honest, who like just decide they're going to like beeline the guy straight for the wall. Like 10 steps, straight ahead, then you're good. The guy just walks into the wall. It's terrible. I stopped doing it because it happened too many times. Here's the point. It is not bad to be controlled by something. It is bad to be controlled by something that does not have your best interest. Here's what we're saying. The love of Christ controls you. The love of one that laid his life down for you. The love of one who removed himself from the throne, came down and humbled himself and took your place in your life and stayed on that cross and said, I have to stay here. That's the one that controls you. And that's good news because he is good. And so when we talk about, if I say something's controlling you, I don't want that to turn you off. It's a good thing. And Paul says, he knows that and says, look, you're being controlled by a lot of things. The love of Christ has to control you. And here's the reality for us this morning. And this is where um, I'm admitting it to you before everyone. I, I let other things control me than the love of Christ. Every day of my life, this is a struggle 
to combat certain things that get in the way of controlling the decisions I make, of how much I love my wife, of how much sacrifice I'm going to make. It is so competing, and, and I gotta, I haven't talked to every one of you, but I'm involved in your lives enough to know that this is a struggle, too, to be controlled by other things. And sometimes the problem is they're good things that take their ultimate place where Christ is supposed to be. And so I don't know what it is. For some of you, it might be fear. I'm going to be honest, this is my big one. Fear of the unknown, fear of, of when that phone rings and it's your wife or your, your husband or your, your dad or your kids or someone, of what is this phone call going to bring? Fear of circumstances that are, that are outside of your control. Or maybe another one is success. And not just success to, to kind of climb the ladder, but success is saying, I want to be seen as someone that has it all together, right? This is another one. I guess all these are actually me. I start with everything. Um, I want to be seen as someone that's an adequate father. I want to be seen as someone that, that is a good husband and a good pastor and a good employee. But we, and those things aren't wrong, but we take those and say, my aim in life, the thing that's controlling me, the thing that's going to inform the decisions that I make is that my end goal is to make sure that I'm successful or seen as successful. Or how about this one? It's money, the love of possessions. Maybe that's not even money. A lot of times it's the security that having money brings, and that controls us. This is another struggle of mine. Right now, right now my struggle is I just want a car with working air conditioning. But here's the thing. I've had a car with working air conditioning before. And when I had a car with working air conditioning, it's not like I went along saying, oh, my life is just complete in Christ because I have working air conditioning. No, I filled it with something else. You see, these are dangerous because we always think, as long as we just achieve this, then I'm never going to be in want again. As long as I don't <clears throat> have tragedies happen and my kids grow up healthy, I'm never going to be wanting. As long as I reach this level of success, I don't need to be really successful, but as long as I get this, then I'm never going to be in want. As long as I have enough money to do these things, I'm not asking for, for a mountain house. I'm just asking for and fill in the blank. And we fill in this with anything other than the love of Christ controlling us. The reality is if we don't let him something else will. The danger of this is what Paul mentions in the beginning, where he says we boast in the outward appearance. Okay, the danger of everything I mentioned is that what we do then is we present ourselves and say, look at me, I'm successful. Look at me, I'm the right kind of dad, the right kind of husband, the right kind of employer, employee. And the gospel comes in, and you have to say, I'm being controlled by something inside of me that someone can't see. That's why this one's so hard. It's because we don't like boasting about things that are inside of us that we can't see. We want to say, look at this result. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. And the gospel comes in and says, the love of Christ, who gave himself up for you, who's in your heart, controls you. So how do we let this gospel change us now, Continue at this point? Here's sort of an exercise. There's a doctrine called total depravity. Don't worry, I'm not going to you know, spend the rest of the time talking about this, but here's all this means. In addition to being that you are sinful and that we are in need of a Savior, it means that every role that you have in your life, there's not one role where sin hasn't touched. So your role as a student, as a brother, as a sister, as a child, as a father, as an employer, as an employee, as a neighbor, I mean, there's a million different roles. Every role that you have, this means that there's no role that you have that sin isn't able to touch. And do you know what we have to do because of that? 
If every single one of our roles sin has touched, then you have to look and say the transforming work of the power of the gospel has to go in and touch every single role. We just sang, they said, where sins run deep, grace runs deeper. This is what it means when we say that you need the gospel to come in and inform everything in your life. We're so good at separating the gospel to Sunday morning to saying, okay, I recognize my need for reconciliation, and then that thing that I struggle with on Wednesday in whatever role, no, the gospel can't go there. That doesn't have to do with Sunday morning. When we were roofing, I got to make sure to, I told my students I was going to use this beforehand. They were like, don't say my name, so I'm not going to say their name. Uh, when we were roofing in Texas, there was, a, uh, there was a day where we had cleared out all the shingles, and then there's an afternoon where we had to, like, shingle the whole house. By the way, if you're a roofer, I'm sure I'm going to say wrong things. You're going to laugh at me. I'm going to say things were hard when you think they're not. I'm sorry. But um, I'm not getting all my terms right. But it was kind of like a two-pitch roof where it was very simple. There were no valleys, I think they're called, with windows and all that. It was just, you know, as simple as it gets for roofing. And we kind of had two teams going on where at first it made sense because, well, you guys start there and you guys start here. And we kind of noticed that we were kind of on par with each other. So we started like competing this side of the roof with this side of the roof. And uh, we always get a little nervous. Uh, a lot of you know Rob and Jackie Passer. They came here during Hurricane Matthew and worked alongside us. And so Rob is a brilliant contractor. And so every time he would kind of walk up and look at what we were doing, we always kind of like got really nervous, like, oh, he's watching me. You know, like he's going to notice something. And sure enough, um, he came up to two students and he just said, I think he said this, he said, what are you doing? <laughs> you see them just like stop. And he pulls up a couple of shingles and looks and see that they did. And, and if you've shingled a roof, you know that everything kind of compounds on each other. Like if you mess one thing up, she looks and they mess up that row. And he says, oh, how far does this go? And he lifts up and sees the second row had that. And I think just the third row, I got to give him credit. I mean, we were like 15 rows up. It wasn't all the way down, but it was like a good two or three rows and he looks, and that's what we're saying. We're saying that, that the Holy Spirit comes in to each part of our lives and says, what are you doing? But he doesn't leave us there. The gospel comes in and says, Christ died for that. And the Holy Spirit comes in and convicts us and then reminds us, and Christ died for that. And so in every area of your life, you have to allow the transforming work and power of the gospel to come in, and it has something to say for that. Both that Christ died for that sin, but also that because Christ didn't just die, we often forget this part about what Christ did. If Christ just died, sin's not defeated. Do you realize that? Christ died and then rose again. And in his resurrection, he comes and says, I showed you that I will die for your sin, and now that I showed you, you can overcome it because I was raised to newness of life. That is the power of the resurrection. Here's the crazy thing. It's that same power that raised Christ from the dead that's the power that's inside of us that is able to fight this fight with us. Do you realize that? It's not like we got the backup team where, you know, Christ got the varsity raising himself to newness of life and we just kind of get the backup of what God had. No, it's the same Holy Spirit that says, I raised a man to life and I'm coming into your heart. I'm coming into your life and you better believe that I have that power too because I raised a man to life and I am God. And he comes in and we have to let him. You know, a hard part, but an hour after my students went through that, one of the students 
like, kind of started freaking out. And he said, uh, Tim, am I doing this right? I, I, I don't know. Like, look at this. And he just had, he kind of second-guessed himself on a whole different part. And I had, like, one more day of roofing experience than this student. I said, I'd, I think so. I mean, it looks okay. You know what I didn't have? I didn't have the perfect roof to look at. It's kind of what I realized later. It would have been easy if someone said, show me, a, if I could say, show me a picture of what this is supposed to look like, and now let me compare it to what this roof looks like. Well, guess what we have in Christ? We have the perfection of what this looks like. We can look at our lives and say, Christ doesn't need to transform. He's already there. And so the blessing of having him come and live this life is that he walks us through and says, this is what I care about, and this is what this looks like to be like me. He comes, here are just a few things. He comes and says, for conflict, here's what it looks like to have conflict well. You do a Matthew 18 way of addressing the person. And then in Matthew 5, when it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. I said, here's how to handle conflict. Here's how to handle forgiveness. Ready? When Peter said, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven? Christ says, 70 times seven. This is what it looks like to experience forgiveness. He comes in and says, hey, you want to know how to care about the poor and the needy? When you care about them, you're caring for me. When you gave them something to eat, it was like you were giving me something to eat. In marriage, this is a hard one, he says, hey, you want to know what your marriage is supposed to look like? Like, your, like a husband who gave himself up for the church because I died for my bride. And then as children, he comes and he says, I know listening to your parents is hard. I was obedient to my father, even to the point of death on a cross. And he takes all these and says, this is what this looks like. Now, before moving on, I'm not going to leave you here because I feel like I just depressed all of you. <laughs> Here's the problem with this. And uh, I'm stealing this illustration from Jason Suddeth. I asked him, Actually, he was not convinced that he didn't hear it from Bill, so I may be stealing it from Bill as well. But uh, when we talked about this several months ago when Jason preached, talked about how discouraging it can be when you look at your, your life close up, right? You look at the day-to-day and you wonder, am I changing, right? Am I any different? Like, I remember struggling with the same thing. The same thing made me just as mad last week that it did this week. And Tim, you're telling me that I have the Holy Spirit inside of me fighting sin, able to, to, to do all these things, and yet I don't seem to be changing. And he described it as, you picture if you look at the Mona Lisa, if you look at it like an inch away, what do you see? I mean, just kind of a, a brown mess. You think, that's not that great. And then the further you step back, you look and you see just absolute stunning beauty. And this is what our lives look like. Here's the promise. I'm so glad I can say this because this is in Scripture. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That this isn't just something I'm saying, hey, it'd be great if you could try this and maybe you'll do it, maybe you won't. Like if you truly are in Christ, he's changing you. That, that is a reality because it is coming from scripture that the old has gone and the new has come. And it is by the same power of the resurrection that you are being changed. Think about how different this is, the idea of being a new creation. Think about what it took God to create the first time in Genesis 1. Remember? He spoke, and things came into existence. Now I want you to think about what it took for God to do this new creation. It wasn't enough. He comes and he says, I have to give my life to make this new creation. And so when you're struggling to wonder, am I any different? 
Look to one who said, I'm going to lay down my life and I'm going to show you that I overcame sin on your behalf. That I was resurrected to newness of life so that when you go and you fight sin and we look and we say, how can we transform our lives by the power of the gospel? It is as strong and as sure as the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. But here's what this means. You caught in our text, it says that we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. But then it says, just like once we regarded Christ in the flesh, we regard him no longer. The people sitting in the, in the seats next to you are also brothers and sisters in Christ. And you don't regard them in the flesh. That for the same reason that Christ raised from the dead, and we now no longer consider him in the flesh, that same spirit is how we look at one another. We are all resurrected to newness of life. And so with this last point, this is how we extend the transforming work of the gospel. I'm going to do something weird. I'm going to read the first verse and then the last two or three verses of our text to kind of bring this out. So the first verse, in verse 11, it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And then again, towards the end, he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Here's what's kind of happening here. This is, Paul is doing the same thing that I believe every pastor, every leader has to do when you're trying to train a congregation or people to catch a vision. You know full well that by yourself, there's no way you're going to be able to do it. Paul's biggest aim in writing all these letters, not just this one, but everything else he has written, is to say, I'm going to bring you the gospel, but, but I am so in desperate need of for you to catch on to what I'm saying, and then for you to be, guess what, ministers of the gospel. And so, as we talk about the vision, I want you to know that if this is just kind of from the pulpit to the congregation, or from pastors to you, and that's, the, and that's where it ends we're going to fail at this. It has to then take hold in your life and then look around you. Do you see other people who are in need of the transforming work of the gospel? Think about what kind of, to, in summary here, what we're saying. We're saying that we were people in need of reconciliation, that we were hell-bound men, that Christ came in, took the full payment for our sins, that we are in newness of life, that we're a new creation, and that we have ongoing work to do. And then the, the biggest injustice, I think, as a church so often, not just our church, this is every church, is that we don't talk about it. We don't go, we're not willing to go to someone and say, hey, I'm not the father that I want to be, or I'm not the son that I want to be, or I'm not the pastor I want to be, or the employer that I want to be. We never talk, and so all of us are kind of looking around thinking, is anyone else struggling with actually feeling like they can change? And maybe if we talk, a lot of times we just, we'll admit that, but we won't point others to Christ to say, hey, the answer for where to go with your shame in that is to see Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think one of the reasons why we don't do this is that we're so quick, we're so scared to judge others, right? We've all heard it before. That's kind of the first thing I think people bring up, um, and sometimes it's, it's valid, but if you want to bring up something about someone, you say, well, it's just, I don't want to be a judge. Okay, so I learned something when I was preparing for Psalm 51 a few months ago, preaching. This is uh, the Psalm of David, after, if you remember, he had just um, uh, had an affair with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, tried to cover it up. That didn't work. 
uh, and then he had him murdered, essentially committing a murder, goes like a year without saying anything, and Psalm 51 is him just coming to his knees and saying, oh man, I messed up. This was a complete disaster. And there's a line in there that I think people don't often recognize enough because I think it's truly fascinating and revolutionary if you think about it. In the midst of like, he just got done confessing, saying, yes, this was me. Man, I just, I just failed everything. God, I am, I am a sinner. And he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And then the next line is this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You ever thought about how crazy that is? Like he just finished admitting, I mean, we don't even talk about David without, you know, David, king of Israel, and David and Bathsheba. Like like this is the guy that we bring this up, and he just finished admitting who he was, and the next line is, God restored me the joy of my salvation so that I can then teach people how not to sin. I mean, that's crazy. And the reason why I think it's crazy is because we think we have to have all of our stuff together before we go into deep community with each other. I'm so guilty of this, guys. We, before we have dinner, before we have that conversation, I think, okay, before I talk about this, is there anything in my life? And there's a point to where you do need to look at your life, take the log out of your eye before the speck, but the problem is I think we are so prevented from doing this, and here's what the gospel allows you to do. It comes in and says, you are not boasting in the holiness of yourself, as you talk to someone and point others to the gospel, you're boasting in Christ. And so I think if we change the way that we had this conversation, it would change our church. Kind of in, in closing, in Texas, uh, Jackie and I were, were talking back and forth and we realized a really cool connection. So two years ago, our high schoolers went to SOS Memphis. It's like a, a Christian camp that does kind of like Habitat for Humanity type work. And uh, we did a lot of roofing, kind of in low-income housing in Memphis. So we had that. Fast forward two months or so later, we had Hurricane Matthew happen in our area. Reach Global comes in, spends six months to 12 months uh, with us, working on homes, working alongside us. Hurricane Harvey happens that August. They then go and do ministry there. And then our students, our church goes and partners with them, now alongside them, who they used to work with us, and we're now partnering with them. And this was incredible. At Texas, where we were, there was an 18-year-old kind of team leader who we realized was there the same week in SOS Memphis that had nothing to do with Reach Global as a student and remembered our group. That connection was unbelievable. And you know what it did for me? It gave me a bigger view of the kingdom of God. That, that if we just grasped this, if we just said, what would church look like? What would our communities look like if we actually saw lives transformed by the power of the gospel? That it gives you a bigger view for the kingdom, and it takes you outside of yourself, because we get so caught up in saying, I, I'm not seeing my life transformed. I had a student, or a, a leader in Texas, there was one night where we had to say, you know, your name, introduction, and like what God was doing in your life currently. And I'm just beat at this point. This is like the Wednesday night. I'm tired. We slept on air mattresses and I got like three hours of sleep. In Texas, heat, eight hours, 112. It was awful. I was exhausted. And I thought, great. I'm the youth pastor. You know, if I can't say what God's doing in my life, then um, this is not going to go well. And I'm so glad that one of my leaders answered first because he said, I I feel like he kind of had that same exhaustion. And he said, I have been so encouraged by seeing what God is doing in other people's life, that that is the transformation process that's happening in me. 
that, that I thought about this and, and I was struggling with what to say, but I have a bigger view of the kingdom of God because of what God is doing. And he's not just saying, oh, God's not working in me, but he's working in other people. He's genuinely saying, I was spiritually encouraged because of watching what God is doing in the lives of other people. And church, we need to remember that. We need to look around to know that God is working. And when you're tempted to feel like God is not doing work in you, first of all, know that you're wrong. You're always being changed. But also look around you. Have a bigger view for the kingdom of God. This is why it's so important to get out and to do these things, these trips that we take, because they show us that there is a bigger view of the kingdom of God and that if we just saw our lives transformed, we would have a better grasp of it. Let's pray.